the, uh, those of you that are familiar with Scotland, uh, Scotland know that if there's MC in the front of a name, it means son of. And so son of loud, I am. So I think even if this thing isn't on, I mean, we're probably still recording it. So, um, um, so I like to start with this, this quote, that a surgeon who uses the wrong side of the scalpel cuts her own fingers and not the patient. If the same applied to drugs, they would have been investigated very carefully a long time ago. PG has this quote memorized. She's seen this slide so many times. But I literally try to use this every time I give a talk because it really frames for me um, the, the way we've treated um, uh, medicines versus some other parts of, of medical treatment. And we talk about genetic exceptionalism. There's also um, pharmaceutical exceptionalism, where we've had uh, a different expectation for our understanding of medicines than we have for other types of, of uh, uh, ways we've applied, whether it's surgical approaches, in some cases, radiation approaches. Uh, we've required some additional data. The, the amount of data that one requires around uh, radiation safety looking at normal tissue radiation, et cetera, for new approaches is, is much higher um, in terms of mechanistic understanding uh, than, than one might need for a pharmaceutical. And so we, we need to remember that, that we, we don't understand drugs very well. The, the drugs that are, are approved by the FDA all have a label. And I know there's at least one fellow here, and so you'll be taking board exams. Um, of course there's a right answer on the exam. Um, but the reality is we don't really know how drugs work. You know, COX-2 inhibitors have activity in COX-2 knockout mice. You know, TOPO-1 one inhibitors have activity independent of TOPO-1 levels, et cetera. And, and so there's a lot to still understand in terms of, of medicines, how they work, how they harm, um, ways that we can try to uh, change risk-benefit uh, measurements. We're also told about this by such prestigious medical groups as the People's Pharmacy, based here in Durham. I don't see Joe and Terry in the audience. So you got to be careful, because they appear, appear all, all sorts of places, usually trying to pawn off one of their books of some sort. So this is one of their recent books that came out and you know, had wonderful uh, uh, headlines like, People's Pharmacy authors tell you how to survive a hospital stay. And there's, there's elements like that where uh, there, there is a degree of risk um, in the way we, we treat people uh, because of, of, uh, of adverse events. We have things like, uh, I don't know if you can read this headline from this screen capture from a, a few years ago, one in nine emergency visits are caused by pharmaceuticals. And when you look at, at who is being, being harmed, it's older patients, and by older I don't mean ancient, I mean it, I think uh, the, it was over 55, which is starting to become quite young uh, as things move <laughs> forward. Um, and uh, number of comorbidities, you know, other conditions, no surprise, had a little bit more than that. You can see what medicines, warfarin, insulin, digoxin, but many culprits, as we'll see in a couple more slides. Um, and then uh, about a couple weeks ago now, uh, in New England, um, looking at uh, high incidence of adverse drug reactions in, in uh, older Americans, we see a lot of data showing that the drugs we use are helping a lot of people and harming some people. Um, and so trying to understand adverse drug reactions and, and trying to use that data uh, to, to provide medical care has certainly been on the radar um, since, they, since people were chewing on bark uh, back in the, uh, in the old days. Like when Alan was trained, people playing time like that. You know. Now, adverse drug reactions uh, are, are really, the definition is shown there from the WHO, but it's, it's a common enough event that we really, it's a surprise that we don't take it more seriously. There are plenty of things that happen less commonly 
uh, that, that, we, that we take um, very seriously. I mean, aspiration pneumonia after anesthesia happens much less commonly than average drug reactions. And yet, look at all the effort that we put to try to avoid aspiration. Um, in, you know, every patient's getting antiemetics before general anesthesia. There's all sorts of protocols to keep people from, from uh, swallowing themselves um, and, and yet, or inhaling themselves, and, and yet uh, it's a, a relatively rare occurrence. Um, in this case, somewhere between 6 and 7 percent of hospitalizations with uh, U.S. data, on average about a 2 percent, uh, uh, two, sorry, a two-day increase in average hospital uh, stay, um, which in the past was not necessarily a bad thing. Adverse drug reactions were a cash cow. If you had a few adverse drug reactions, you had more money coming into the health center. Um, and so there was a perverse uh, incentive not to create adverse drug reactions, of course, but to tolerate them, um, allow them to continue, um, even in situations where, where they, they could be avoided. As we'll come to in a few slides, that's changing. And there's now even more incentive not to uh, let this sort of thing happen. Some, somewhere around 100,000 deaths annually. Pretty loose figure because um, you know it's nice to quote that number. It makes it sound like it's a real number, but you know as you know many of these these deaths um, might have a, a drug as instigating the initial effect, but many other things uh, are contributing to whether it's deaths. Somewhere around half a million um, injuries per year. Um, of course, we know about drugs that have to come off the market because of adverse drug reactions. Not not necessarily the topic of this talk, but a very important issue. Um, and then, uh, that's, that's a typo there on my slide, um, somewhere between five and six million uh, per year per hospital um, is the average amount of money AHRQ says uh, we, we lose. Um, it was nine million last year at UNC Hospital. I don't know the data uh, for, for Duke Hospital. But a sizable amount of money is being lost per year um, by, by hospitals because of non-reimbursed adverse drug reactions. And that, that information will, will circle back in the later part of this talk because uh, we now see hospital CEOs and other leadership starting to um, pre want to be preemptive in terms of avoiding uh, f uh, adverse drug reactions in, in the same vein as they were instigating hand washing and other approaches to try to decrease the amount of uh, hospital-acquired infections that were, were occurring. Now, in terms of adverse drug reactions, there's at least two different types, uh, de depending on, on how you look at it. Um, the, the old uh, way of thinking about it was uh, type A and type B. Um, Dose-dependent would be things like someone giving a, a double dose of their insulin and then getting uh, hypoglycemia, uh, or taking two doses of oxycodone and having some respiratory depression, uh, that, that sort of, of thing. So it's, it's predictable, it's, surprised. It's, it's not necessarily something that will be uh, predicted by genetics, and maybe psychogenetics or something like that, but not necessarily um, the other way. The, the second type um, has been called unpredictable. Um, it's non-dose-dependent, idiosyncratic, idiopathic, whatever your favorite term is, uh, but ways of, of uh, where you give a drug and something bad happens you could not have anticipated. And as we'll talk about in a few slides, many of these unpredictable, unanticipated events are becoming predictable um, as we understand the mechanism behind some, some of these events. And so it used to be that Stevens-Johnson syndrome from carbamazepine uh, was, a, was one of these, and still technically is one of these types. Uh, but now we have some markers, at least in some populations, uh, that seem to predict who is going to get these, these effects. So Howard, um, sure. do you mind if I Oh, please, please do. Yeah. How, do. how do we capture ADR information? So uh, I remember in the old days, you'd get this piece of paper from the FDA that said, you know, have any of your patients had an adverse drug reaction in the last month? <coughs> so fill this out and send it back. And that ended up in the trash most of the time. So yeah. 
Well, usually, usually, the, um, yeah. So usually somebody would fill that out once. They would fill the, the adhere's form out one time, and they would send it in, and they would realize that the FDA was never going to stop asking them for more information on adverse drug reactions for that one patient. And so then they would start throwing the piece of paper out very rapidly and purposefully um, because they, they didn't want all that pain. Uh, within the hospital system, it's very poorly captured. Most hospitals, including uh, Duke Hospital, have a medication safety officer. It's mandated now by, by the regulators of hospitals. And, and so these people um, try to capture that information in the same way they try to capture things like a, a, a nurse misplacing a, a dose or giving the wrong drug from the wrong tray or whatever. Um, and, and so it's all put into that same area. But it, it's very much a, um, you, someone has to trigger the event in order for them to know about it. You know, they don't go and audit every, every patient every day in that, in that sort of way. And so, for example, at, at, um, talking to the person who does that at UNC, uh, the, the highest uh, number of, of adverse events from drugs was found in radiology. There's a fairly high incidence of, of nausea, some vomiting after contrast for CT. And so if you look at that data at face value, you think, wow, that's where all the adverse drug reactions are happening. But if you dig into it further, that's where all the drug, adverse drug reaction reporting is happening. Because the, the techs in radiology, as part of their protocol, report that. And they're very good at reporting it. And therefore, they're at the top of the table in terms of, of the list. And it makes it look like, wow, you know, what a missed opportunity. We're not doing more pharmacogenetics in the uh, radiation, uh, radiology suite. Um, but the, a lot of it really comes down to reporting. What's changed now is the, uh, the changes in, in reimbursement are causing a greater level of, of um, scrutiny of adverse drug reactions. Because if you're labeled an adverse drug reaction, we're, maybe I'll preempt a couple slides, we're, we're heading to a point where if you break it, you buy it. So if you cause an adverse drug reaction, right. you won't get reimbursed. And so now we, there's a lot more scrutiny on the quality of the data, not to cheat the system per se, at least we'll think that, um, but, but rather to be able to know when you really are on the hook for having to manage that patient. Uh, the rest of that patient, or when when you will get reimbursed because it is a separate event. I guess the, uh, the, the numbers on your previous slide must be a gross underestimate. Then. I think uh, the numbers that I'm uh, that I'm taking it from, they looked at a, a few centers and then extrapolated up to the rest of the country. Okay. Would there be a way to identify drug adverse drug events in a medical record? I mean, how would you? Do yeah. That? So there, there are code, you know, with the new coding system, which is going to be a nightmare. Um, so with the current coding system, some of the adverse drug reactions do have fairly clear codes. But if you look at something like Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which seems really straightforward, there, there are about 80 different ways of labeling that, that problem. And so if you get a dermatologist who has actually seen it before, um, they'll label it a certain way. Dermatologist who hasn't seen it before will label it a different way. And of course, you get non-dermatologists here. You know, it's everything from an uh, inc inconvenient rash all the way through to uh, it burn you to admission. So uh, it, it's, it's, a, uh, it's not very easy to mine that data. We, we have a trigger. Right now, we're, we have an informatic trigger where there are certain ICD-9 codes that if, if they happen, uh, somebody gets paged and they go and they work them up. But again, that's, that's, it's not a very good system because there's plenty of things that aren't, I mean, we're lousy at coding at our hospital. You know, you wonder why UNC doesn't make very much money. Part of it is because we take a lot of charity care. Part of it is we're really crap at coding. Um, and so we don't get reimbursed for what we should get reimbursed for. Um, and that's, they're trying to change that. But um, if you're not good at coding, not only do you not get reimbursed, but you also don't 
capture the, 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 the adverse drug reactions and all, all the other things very well. Yeah, so a lot of uh, adverse drug reactions come in like through a pharmaceutical company. And do you, I mean, yeah. given that, you know, you have a very controlled condition in a hospital in terms of giving medications, but then when it gets out and yeah. people are doing it at home or things, what, what, it seems like there would be uh, much yeah. more and, and maybe also underreported. Very much so. There, there are, there's a lot of, it's very, as Jeff mentioned, there, it's very painful to do these reports to the FDA. And I wasn't joking about, if you do it once, you won't do it again because it is, re they do not stop asking for more information, things that are way out of your control uh, and, and out of your, your even the day that you have. Um, they, well, they have to in phase three. Uh, there, are, there isn't a heavy mandate in phase four. So they, they often will look for it. And certain companies will be very, very proactive and go out there. Um, and, and others uh, have more of a, a wait and see. Um, there are some drugs and some drug development schemes now which are, are uh, requiring a little more intensive follow-up. And there's been, you know, people like, like Alan and others have, have um, postulated for, for years that you know, we're moving to a point where phase four will be a much, not necessarily a controlled environment, but a little bit more uh, controlled environment. We're capturing that data a little bit more um, in, in terms of, of trying to get that data. And we're seeing that now with the, the, new, uh, the new anticoagulants. Uh, you know, they came out, say, okay, new anticoagulants, you know, warfarin will never be used again. These new anticoagulants are out there. Um, there's data just came out from, from some of the early surveillance from Medco and others showing that people aren't able to stay on these drugs very long. Uh, there, there's a lot more toxicity than was seen in phase three trial. And so, you know, they saw a spike in the use of warfarin because people were coming off those drugs and going back to warfarin. So, you know, here is something that was forecasted to be, you know, the, the, the new answer, wouldn't have to monitor it, wouldn't have to do genetics, wouldn't have to, and then, you know, that's not panning out because the toxicity in phase four in, in the real world is so much higher or seems to be so much higher than, than otherwise. There are, um, and, and so you also get adverse drug reactions like this. And I'm, I'm, I, this is an inadequate presentation on purpose because we'll come back to it. But this is a, 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 a real situation. It's a 44-year-old uh, white male who's a chief scientific officer of a loyal bi local biotech company. Uh, he had a, his congenital heart uh, defect, had AV block, came to get, a, uh, to get opened up to, to get a pacer stuck in, um, and ended up with four extra days of hospitalization because of inadequate pain control. And uh, we'll hear more about that. This, this happened to happen here, um, but could have happened at our place, could have happened at a lot of places, um, because of the way uh, medical staff currently think. And so we'll, we'll come back to that point in terms of, of adverse drug reaction uh, prevention using uh, inadequate pain control and as an untoward effect. So I consider that an adverse drug reaction not in the Stevens-Johnson syndrome type of way, uh, but as a, an undesired effect of the, of the medication. Now, when you talk about adverse drug uh, events, there's a lot of things that, that we're not talking about. So this data, this slide is one I captured from a, a recent paper. Um, it's purposefully confusing. It has um, all sorts of informatic types of ways of, of looking at adverse uh, uh, events. Errors in medication data, errors in dispensing, errors in transfer information, errors in prescribing, errors in guideline following, errors in the administration of the drug. There are lots of different ways that you can do things wrong. I'm not talking about those. I mean, trying to have predictors of, of someone giving someone else the wrong medicine are, are more difficult, and certainly there are plenty of people who have expertise in, in, in how to do that. But more talking about the, the, the effects that the drugs have on themselves, on the, on the patient. 
And this is some, some data, it happens to be from, from Japan, but it made the point, so I stuck it in here. Um, looking at, at a particular hospital in Japan, th there are medication errors and there are adverse drug events, and in some cases, both. Um, and they are separate things. And so we're talking about the uh, giving a medicine to someone on purpose at the right dose and something bad happening um, in terms of, of that. Um, I don't know if you can read this from here, but it happens all over the hospital. In this hospital, it was about equal um, incidence in, on medicine service, on the surgery service, in the ICU, a little bit higher in the ICU. Um, it also happens with lots of different medicines. So you have antibiotics uh, taking about 36% of, of all the cases, but then everything else um, was, was somewhere in the, in the 2 to 5% type of range. So there's a lot of different types of medicine that cause this, and that's part of the problem. When you look at, at adverse drug reactions, it's literally 100 different things. It's not one thing that you have to go and solve. And so that's part of the, the, the difficulty in trying to find solutions, is it's not gonna be simple um, as, as go and take everybody off of a certain med or, or a certain class of meds, but rather we're talking about uh, a lot of different types of, of medicines. Jed. So that, that blue circle there, the adverse drug events that aren't due to medication errors, does that include type A and type B? So yeah, yes, that would include both types, you, yeah. Is there any and data that, that shows well, this doesn't have the ratio. So this is another paper looking across six different community hospitals. And if you just take, uh, since I haven't put a box around it, this the so this would be the 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 um, type A. They call it preventable, but the type A type, um, it's somewhere between uh, uh, um, so what was the bottom eight and a half to eleven or eight and a half to fourteen um, cases per hundred admissions were happening with those types. Um, a little bit less with the other type. It was uh, sorry. Um, in the, the two to five uh, per hundred admission rate. So the, 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 um, the dosing type happened more commonly um, than the others, but the others still are, are happening. So, you know, every, you know, if you're admitting 100 people today, a day, uh, like Duke does, um, you know, two of those people will have an adverse drug reaction. And that, that dosing error is an error just based on body mass, or I suppose that an error based on their genotype? Well, I, I think it's not quite that. It, it could be either of those things. Um, in some cases, in some cases, it's a, it's a inadequate dosing. So, you know, most hospitals, in, in, I believe Duke does, I know UNC does, uh, for pediatrics, they have a, a weight-based um, capture. So, um, the informatically, there's a, a, a range that's been set for a drug, and if the weight that's in that system, you know, get the dose divided by that weight, if it's outside that range, it will not allow the drug to be dispensed, or it'll put a flag up in some case. So there's, there's things like that that have occurred to try to avoid simple things like overdosing based on weight. Um, th these are more often, uh, they, they could be genetic, like you gave someone uh, oxycodone and they were an ultra-rapid metabolizer and you didn't know it, and so you functionally gave them an overdose, uh, you just didn't realize what you were doing. Um, or it could be um, something more simple, like a nurse came in and gave, a, 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 one nurse came in and gave a, a dose of insulin, another one came in and gave the dose of insulin. Um, that does happen. You'd think it would, wouldn't happen, but it, it does happen on a way too regular basis, uh, where, where you know, just too much was given. Mm -hmm. So adverse drug reactions are an old problem. Um, so why should we care now? Um, part, part of the reason, I mean, we, of course, never stop caring about it. That's the official thing. But part of the reason is the mechanism for unpredictable adverse drug reactions are, are starting to, to come out. And so what was called unpredictable um, by our parents is now predictable in our generation. And, and so it's, it's something where we, we can start taking a new look at an old problem. 
patients are becoming consumers of health and they're demanding lower risk. You know, they know a level of risk uh, when they buy uh, one type of car versus another type of car and take that into account during their purchases. You know, the, the reason Volvo still exists is because of the perception that it, it's safer uh, than, than some of the others. Um, and, and so that is starting to translate into, into healthcare where people are wanting more information. Um, changes in the way healthcare is being consolidated is really encouraging uh, risk mitigation. What I, what I mean by that is we're now st starting to see output from um, Medicare, um, a little bit from Medicaid, some from insurance companies, taking uh, uh, the stance that if it's a, um, a hospital-acquired condition, that it won't be reimbursed or it will be reimbursed at a lower rate. And so the most dramatic examples were a few years ago when uh, the pilot was done uh, looking at bed sores uh, post-surgery. And that, that uh, was implemented where, you know, if you had a, a bed sore post-surgery, you were not going to be paid for it. You had to manage it yourself. And so what happened is the incidence of bed sores in many of the hospitals went from around 20% to less than 1%. And it showed that, in, at least in that case, um, it was just a matter of inadequate care um, as opposed to some kind of uh, mechanistic uh, finding that was associated with, with surgery. And so, unfortunately, that was in one of the initial pilots, and so it's led to a lot more uh, with the assumption that they all, will all be equally successful. And I, I don't think that will be the case. Um, but we're seeing uh, this sort of event where, again, back to the you break it, you buy it type of uh, a model. The other thing that's happening is that the bundling of care is starting to occur. And I don't know um, how much you're seeing it over here, um, but uh, certainly we're seeing with the, the payers uh, that there are a few of our patients that have insurance. And the, the ones that, that do, um, uh, many of them now are being bundled. So if you need a hip replacement, um, it's now bundled where the cost of the, the surgeon, the device, physical therapy, anesthesia, you know, everything around the care of that patient is one sum. They'll, they'll pay one amount for that. And if it costs you more than that, Tough luck. If it costs you less than that, you keep the savings. And so now we're starting to see points where, well, are certain things really necessary? You know, I don't know if you've worked with orth orthopedic surgeons, but they do a lot of things um, that are kind of hard to figure out why. You know, it's because that's how they were trained, and, they're and you know, it's because that's how it's done. We give a dose of this. And, um, and so some of that is now being called into the question, um, say, well, do we really need to? Because there's now not only the evidence-based medicine pressure that's always been there, but now some economic pressures that, that are there. And so um, this, this uh, iatrogenic events as a preventable um, uh, event or as a measure of low quality, um, either of those things are likely to lead to lower reimbursement. And, and so there's a lot of planning now at the administ hospital administration level to think about how do we start avoiding these things, of course, to make sure patients have the best care, but also to make sure that reimbursement is, is not harmed um, at a time when, when things are, are quite fragile. So we, we need to do something new. Um, there, there's now too many reasons not to. And, and so why don't we borrow from, from science? And, and so we know that in many aspects of medicine, preemptive uh, approaches are, are taken. So uh, with, with um, measures of, of um, like for drug interactions, for example, renal dysfunction, age, those kind of factors are risks. For, for a problem. So you adjust the dose of a drug in someone that has a low creatinine clearance, not because you know they'll be harmed or have an alter, altered effect, but because their probability is, is higher. Um, same with a number of the other comorbidities. It, there, it's a probability game that, it, that is coming through. Um, it's the reason we vaccinate. It's the reason we use a lot of different medicines. And we have a path to follow with drug interactions. 
terms of the, the types of data, how it integrates into the package <laughs> insert and the, and the prescribing label, how, uh, which no one reads, but goes into these kind of books and more importantly, these kinds of, of uh, PDA to, uh, uh, programs that do guide a lot of, of practice. And so we, we have a model for, for how to use probability and risk in, in terms of driving things forward. Jeff. And what would you say is the uh, number of those kinds of data that have been generated through randomized controlled clinical trials? Very little. Um, they, yeah, I mean. They're um, accepted as being the gospel. Yeah, but you, that's a that's a sociology and psychology issue, uh, not a. I mean, evidence-based medicine is a wonderful objective, but the idea that it's reality is um, naive. No, I guess I'm I'm not really disagreeing with you. I and I know you're probably going to talk about this later, but it's this idea that we accept things like creatinine clearance as a as a way to guide dosing drugs without any real. Uh, the, that evidence base, but genetic testing to it. Oh my God! You can waste right, right. Well, the, and and off, you know, often with newer drugs, there are, there are patients who have been dosed. So, uh, you know, many of the at least in the oncology area where I spend some of my time, the the um, we do organ dysfunction trials, but typically it's it's 14 patients that that have uh, uh, creatinine clearance in the 30 to 50 range, and we'll, we'll treat them and we'll measure pharmacokinetics, not necessarily toxicity or efficacy. And if the pharmacokinetics are altered by 50%, uh, that then gets put in the label. And the idea that a biomarker like pharmacokinetics translates into toxicity and efficacy change is just accepted in the area of drug interactions or organ dysfunction. But yet, if the genetic cause of either of those events is brought forward, which is obviously the a genetic alteration of CYP2D6 is much more predictable than a drug interaction for CYP2D6, and yet they're treated completely different. Um, and so there, there's a lot to be worked through. Um, uh, and you know, I think it's, you know, I, I remember you and I talked about writing this, and we never, we haven't written it yet. But there was a paper we joked about writing saying um, uh, Hippocratic versus Hippocritic oath <laughs> um, in terms of, of how it's, and you know, we maybe need to write that. Um, uh, well, skip over that initiative of time. Um, so when you look at, at um, preemption or, or, or pre uh, uh, ways of, of trying to intervene based on, on probability, we do it all the time. So this is data for, for breast cancer screening. You, this is age. This is um, cumulative incidence. And there's a point where there's, an, there's kind of an inflection point right around 40 to 45 years of age. And that's where mammography starts getting recommended. Colonoscopy, same thing. You get an inflection point. Let's start doing let's start doing colonoscopy. Not because you have colon cancer, but because your probability starts going up. Uh, screening for Down syndrome, same thing. Certain age, risk goes up. Screening is is now recommended. Um, and so this concept is out there. It's not necessarily evidence-based, but it's logical um, and and can be taken forward. And so this the same thing can be occurring for other things that happen much more commonly. The incidence of Down syndrome is much smaller than the incidence of adverse drug reactions. Um, and we do this as a kind of a mandated thing on every pregnant woman of a certain age, um, but yet it's, uh, you know, we haven't really thought about it in, in terms of some of the other events that are more, more common. And so, um, you know, can, can we do that? Now, we, we're still waiting to get the, the real data, so just take this as a, a vision of what might come out. But looking uh, through, um, doing analysis with Medco Health Solutions, uh, we're asking the question, we took a, a, a number of drugs that are known to cause adverse drug reactions, and we asked the question in, in five-year increments, what is the risk of needing a prescription for one of these meds based on age? 
And as you, as you go forward, you, you see that even at small ages, there are some of these medicines that are, that are out there. And these include pain control meds, all, all sorts of different meds. Um, but you start getting not so a dramatic inflection point, but an, an increase that occurs somewhere around 45 years of age. Um, tops out at a little over 70. And uh, ironically, uh, if you make it to 80, you're healthier uh, than, than the people in their, in their 60s and 70s, is at least the way the, the data looks, uh, which is probably true. Um, it's, it's all the single malt, I think, that does it. But, but um, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. They're selected for people that are healthy. So, so this concept that we can look at what your risk of needing a medicine is, or a medicine that might harm, um, can be put forward. Same type of thing with comorbidities or with a, a certain types of diseases. We know there's certain diseases that if you have it, you're more likely to, to, uh, uh, to get drugs that cause adverse drug reactions. And so we can take that into account in terms of our, our, our forward planning. So if we know who's at risk and start in terms of age, maybe in terms of some other comorbidities, then we can start using that to, to really go forward. And uh, we, we know that there, there are examples Sorry, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip through some of this, um, where we can start acting on them. So this is a small list of, of ones that we're starting to think through, where we, we know there's certain genes that affect certain drugs that are, result in risk. So whether it's, it's bleeding issues or hypersensitivity-type reactions, stent thrombosis, delayed discharge, readmission issues, there, there's a level of data that is as good as the types of data we currently act on, and that's our, our threshold, which I know is low, um, that we can start thinking about this sort of thing. So if you look at the average patient at, at UNC Hospital, on average, they will be admitted four more times over the next 10 years. So when you look at it from a health system standpoint, even if your assay is a three-day assay or a week assay, the idea of having that data preloaded and useful is is something that can be put forward. Many of you will go to a conference, maybe stay at a hotel that you're a, a, a member at. You know, I have half this wallet is full of, uh, see what this one is. Here's, here's Marriott's reward card. If I stay at a Marriott and give this number, they pre have preloaded what my bed preference is, uh, what's, what type of chocolate I want on my pillow. Okay, maybe not that, but, um, <laughs> but they, they, they know something about me. They preload it. They are ready for me, at least in some way, unless I show up late and then I get stuck in that room right by the elevator and the ice machine. But that's a different story. Um, but the, the idea that we can take information, and if we know who's expected to arrive, then we have it. If, we have, you know, if I have a relative that's a vegan, if I know they might show up, I have some food that might be appropriate for them. It, the same type of thing um, we're not really thinking about in terms of our health system. We're still very much surprised when someone comes in and try to react and treat them, um, as opposed to planning uh, for this, this sort, of, uh, sort of scenario. It's also, this is a terrible slide. I didn't have time to remake it, um, but I'll walk through it very briefly. We also, this is not going to be a rare problem. So what this slide is showing um, is, um, 61 different actional variants, and it's about 23, I think, different what we call must-have genes. So these are genes that we know are associated with some event that we want to avoid, and there are a number of variants in those genes. And so we asked the simple question using data from um, HapMap1 and HapMap2. Um, our, uh, we, we basically gave one point if you had a risk variant. So for however many risk variants you had, you got one point. So this is very naive, very simple, very naive. And we wanted to ask the question, we were basically thinking about this in the context of family medicine. So if you're someone who doesn't care about DNA and you're asked to do something 
Is this going to be a one-time-in-a-lifetime one, one event or something that's common? And so this, the uh, CEU, if you're not into genetics, is, is Caucasians of European descent from Utah. And there is a reason for that, and I'll tell you later. But uh, what, what we found is that everybody had a, at least eight actionable variants across these, these different examples. And at the most, there was 24 actionable variants. So it's not a situation where if you do a preemptive test across a group of people, that one person in this room will have somebody, something actionable. Everybody in this room will have something that's actionable. Now, whether you're ever going to need that medicine is a different story. And, and whether, whether you know, there's a lot of other factors that can be brought in. But, and it's true whether you look at Chinese from Beijing, Japanese, uh, Mexicans, uh, the Yorubans from, from uh, a part of, of uh, Nigeria. Uh, these are the Ga from, from Ghana, uh, from also from West Africa. Um, everybody had uh, some of these variants. And some, some people had a lot, some people had a few. But it's not a rare event. It's something that if we go and do preemptive testing, um, you're going to see something in, in every single person. Um, and so that was important data to us as we started moving forward to this idea of testing every single admission to our hospital and every single patient being seen in our health system and loading that data. What is the utility? Is it going to be a rare event or something that, that is more common? I'm going to buzz through this in the interest of time, so I think most of you are familiar with the Abacavir example. But this is, in terms of, of use, um, this is the, the example, and Alan was, was key to this, um, where by doing testing, incidence of this severe adverse drug reaction went down to zero. Now, this is in the case of an HIV drug, not exactly a, a hospital admission type situation in terms of, you know, most people coming in don't have this situation. But this is an example where knowing the information, uh, genetic information for risk, resulted in elimination of the adverse drug reaction. We have the data from, from Medco. So this is a terrible table that's in the package insert for, for warfarin. Um, gives some dosing recommendations based on the metabolism gene and the, the, um, the target for, for warfarin. And by using this information uh, in some uh, data published uh, about a year and a half ago now uh, from, from Medco, what they will demonstrate is a, um, a fairly dramatic decrease in the incidence of hospitalization in patients receiving warfarin. Now, and, and uh, increase in bleeding events as well, about 30%, way higher than what, than what gets hospital administrators excited. Remember, if you have a 1% uh, situation with a hospital budget, that's millions of dollars. So, you know, a, a half a percent gets people excited up in the administration offices. And if you get something where you're starting to get up into the double digits, um, you know, now they're, they're really starting to mandate things. So the idea is that one can uh, affect important events that can, can affect the bottom line as well as the patient it is something that's starting to make hospital administrators interested in, in these sorts of, of issues. Now, the, the, there is a number of goofy things about this trial. First of all, it was a comparison with historical controls. And they, they did a nice job of handling that, but it is what it is. It, it's, it is not a prospective randomized trial. The other thing is that all they did was give the information to the, the prescriber. They didn't mandate that they actually do anything with the information. And it, it really highlights that we don't know whether this improvement, first of all, we, don't, we, we would like more data saying it's real. But, but secondly, we don't know whether this is the idea of genetics causing someone to pay attention or actually that the data affected a change that caused this benefit. But from my standpoint, I don't really care. 
if a genotype causes someone to pay attention more, and you know, coming back to the pressure, the the uh, the, the post-surgical um, uh, bed sores, you know, someone paid attention and the event went away or nearly went away. That's enough for me. If genetics is nothing more than a tool to cause someone to pay attention, that's a win. Okay, we'd all like there to be mechanism behind it. We'd all like there to be a direct lead. But the, the idea that we can improve outcomes based on people paying attention more and maybe some, some biology um, is something that, that we can, can push on. Now, some places, Vanderbilt, Scripps, uh, uh, ironically, our, our place, are now starting to do uh, testing for clopidogrel routinely, even after the recent JAMA paper um, because of some of the issues in that, that analysis. Um, and basically, there's there the the discussion at our place initially was, uh, should we do this? We've never done this before. Let's do a trial. We did the trial. The cardiologists got used to doing it, saw that there was they were accounting for a percentage of risk, and realized that it was not hard. It was more the idea that one could do it. Once they realized it could be done, that it wasn't scary, then it became routine. And I think there was a lesson there, at least we took it, that um, part of the problem is making someone familiar with the issue. I mean, no one worries about ordering an MRI or, or, a, or a PET scan because they know someone will help interpret it for them. And there is that factor, even though we think we're all above it, of, of um, the unknown. You know, one of the most common calls I'll get from the hospital is, I want to order this test, will you help me interpret it? Because there, there's, there's a fear factor there. Um, and I don't mean swallowing tarantulas or whatever, but the, the idea of, of trying to account uh, for risk um, happens, has to happen at the prescriber level as well as at the, at the patient level. Um, some places, uh, this is a screen capture from St. Jude's, uh, are now ingraining to the medical record. So here's a, a case where a CYP2D6 ultra-rapid metabolizer genotype is in the system. Someone wants to prescribe uh, oxycodone or, or codeine. The warning comes up, and just in the same way, a drug interaction warning or organ dysfunction or a weight warning uh, would come up. And so some places are starting to integrate genetics into the electronic medical record. Now, this is that, that um, person I, I mentioned earlier. A uh, 44-year-old AV block came into pacemaker, um, told the cardiologist, the CT surgeon who was helping place the device, the anesthesiologist, and the admitting team, which had a, a fellow resident and an intern, that during an executive physical, he had a DMET plus chip ran on him and some other pharmacogenetics, and was a CYP2D6 poor metabolizer, and also a, a, um, had VCOR-C1 and C2-C9 data that I, I'm not including in this slide, but also there were some problems with that, that too. Um, and so a data for pain control and anticoagulation. He was controlled um, in the recovery room on, on uh, morphine, was moved to the CCU, uh, switched to oxycodone, had woke up in severe pain. He said it was 10 out of 10. I'm not sure. Uh, my wife says that that's reserved for childbirth. But, um, but anyway, he said it was 10 out of 10. Um, and and um, basically was ignored for a day. Uh, was told to you know, kind of get over it and let the drugs work. Um, until one of the medical students and one of the pharmacists um, happened, to, happened to come doing pre-rounds. And he said, you know, you, oh, I'm a poor metabolizer. Ah! And they said, what? And went out and immediately changed over to hydromorphone, um, which bypass, if you don't know, CYP2D6 is part of the activation mechanism for oxycodone, and um, was able to immediately get uh, a, a much better level of pain control. Still had some pain, but a but much better level than before. And so this sort of problem would, this would have happened at UNC as well, happened to happen here, but it would have happened at UNC, would have definitely happened at most hospitals throughout the US. 
And that is that even when the information is presented to the team, it's ignored. Because no one really, first of all, adverse drug reaction prevention, and I include this as an adverse drug reaction, um, is not really on the radar, except for things like aspiration during, for the anesthesiologist. And pain control and, and things like causing extra days of hospitalization you know, aren't really, it's not really on the radar. It's not, you know, who cares? Well, this costs Duke money. <laughs> you know, Duke Hospital had to pay for three out of these four days. They only got reimbursed for one day. Um, and so this was some, a situation where the hospital lost money um, because of people not paying attention from the start. So the idea that you can have this information preloaded requires someone actually read it and listen to it and apply it. And we, if it's not happening at one of the top 10 medical schools in, or medical centers in the United States, you can imagine what's happening in Siler City or some other, whatever your favorite example of a, uh, where is it you practice? Stanford. Stanford. Stanford, Stanford. Uh, Stanford or Stanford? I can't remember what it is. Anyway, like, either way, I'm right. So I know it's, a, it's an amazing place. We have Stanford down below. We have, you know, Beverly Hillsboro. We have, I mean, it's a really a wonderful area we live in. So, um, but the, the, the concept of, of um, making sure that the data is not just there but can be acted on is, is, uh, is something that is going to take a lot of extra work. The last little piece, because time's closing, is you know, we're good in academics at finding stuff. We have lots of studies. I, I know several people in this room are doing studies where we're going to look at a bunch of markers, find the right one, show that it's important. So as you have a paper doing that that you're getting ready to submit, um, as, as we hopefully all have. Um, that's great, but there's all the rest of it in terms of driving it into practice. And so if you look at the, the package insert stuff I showed you more for warfarin, you know, yeah, the FDA has changed the label. There's now, if you have this genotype for metabolism and this one for, for the target, here's the range you can start in. That looks really great. Except, can you imagine having this sort of information for one drug, much less a bunch of drugs, sitting, sitting out and holding the table? And it's not going to occur. So when, and, you know, there's lots of information. To, so when Brian Gage at WashU developed warfarindosing.org, suddenly we saw people who could order the test. The test's been available forever now be able to apply because they can stick it in there. We developed something called iWarfarin, uh, which is a free war uh, iPhone app if you uh, want. It's, uh, it's really hours of fun. Um, but um, uh, you, you, we can go in and you can stick the information you want. And um, you can play Angry Birds. No. Um, but you, you go in there and you can stick information and you can get a dose recommendation. That idea of taking laboratory data and turning it into a recommendation is what most folks want. Often I'll talk about most, a cousin of mine who's a general practitioner in, in Moriarty, New Mexico. And he has a lot of warfarin patients, and it costs him a lot of time. And he's a it's small practice there. Um, and so he, he wanted to use this information. So he, he ordered a test from LabCorp or Quest, one of them, got the data back. So he calls me up. He says, is uh, CYP2C9 asterisk 3 good or bad? <laughs> I mean, he didn't have a clue. I mean, he's, you know, he's a family medicine guy. I can barely read. So, you know, so, so, you know he's trying to figure out. And, and, and so the idea that we can translate stuff and help him is, is really an important piece. Because otherwise, we're going to generate these great things that will sit on the shelf. Um, and not really go out and, and, and be applied further. Could I just ask you in the interest of time, sure, briefly, yeah. illegally, you know, when you develop something like this, yeah. how do you protect yourself? So, so we, well, we talked to lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in, this, in the case of this, we, uh, so Brian developed, I don't know, I don't remember, Brian must have talked to lawyers when he developed this part. Um, but for this one, we, we went and, and talked to our lawyers about what, you know, because obviously there's liability. So there, there's some language in there that I can't imagine would actually 
be defensible, I mean, be, be useful. But there's language in there saying, you know, this is just a suggestion and blah, blah, blah. But the, the idea is we, well, first of all, we, we built consensus around what we put in. And so we, there, there is a, I don't know the legal term, you probably do for a line of defense that's based on consensus. And so at least we have that behind us and document it. Um, the other thing is we make sure that our institutional lawyers um, are, are aware that we're doing this and hope that their expertise is enough to, um, if they say that we can do it, that there is a basis for it. Now, so you have to make sure that it's something you can defend medically, scientifically, and then legally, um, it's it's put out there as a support tool. Um, you know, you can't mandate how someone practices even if you want to. Um, but it, there's a lot of, um, I guess, maybe wishful thinking um, is a part of the legal approach uh, for that. And, you know, of course, advice from, I don't know if you'd be yourself or somebody um, on, on how to do that better with there. But I think, you know, there's a lot out there right now. Right now, you can calculate APGAR scores. You can calculate anything you want based on an app. And if someone programmed it wrong, um, you know, it, it could cause a problem. You know, <laughs> hopefully you're not in the APGAR score case. But I, I don't know what to ask the flip side of that question is, is, you know, are we coming to a point where you can be liable if you don't use an app like that? Or if you, you know? um, well, I, w there may be a day when, when that occurs. I, I think that that's been a barrier. So the, there's a big difference between the people who are just coming out now and the people who've been in practice for a long time in terms of the the allowing themselves to use, you know, everyone refers to your peripheral brain. You know, we used to have the books in our coat, you know, the Wash U manual, where, oh, it's my peripheral brain. You have your stack of notes that you go through. Oh, so you, if you had a peripheral brain that you wrote or that you had your name on it, it was more common. Now that you have a peripheral brain that is electronic, there's some of the, there's an age gap where the, the older practitioners it's just, it's so much out of their control that they don't, they're not comfortable with that. The younger ones expect it. And, and so I think we're getting to the point where that started to tip, where there's more people who expect that they don't know everything and they, that they need support tools. And, you know, as we go forward, then they'll go. Now, if you look at anesthesia, critical care, they, most of those folks expect to have support systems that make them smarter. They, they grew up in that area where, you know, with adaptive control for anesthesia, you, you, you can't do that as a person. You know, you, you might have all the Bayesian priors you want in your head, but you need more for, to do the, the adaptation of the gas. Um, and, and so those disciplines, they believe that support tools are necessary. And if you don't use them, you know, if you try to give anesthesia without computer support, uh, you know, you'd be in trouble. You'd, legally, I imagine you would. Um, whereas in other practices... There are still plenty of practices within a short drive of this area that don't have, uh, not only don't have electronic medical record, but don't have a computer. And, and so even now, you know, so um, I think we're a ways away from someone getting sued because they don't have an iPhone app. Um, but you, know, you can see in the future where as risk mitigation starts to rely on things like that, that if you're not mitigating risk, then you are welcoming risk, I guess. But who knows? All right, last slide. So I think it's time for uh, cultural change. When we talk to our, so our CEO of our hospital is, um, has adopted this idea of trying to preemptively test people and have risk preloaded. So we're working through it. And I said, you know, you realize this may not save you a penny of money. And uh, I tried to, you know, after I sold it to him, I had to realize I tried to unsell it to him because I didn't want to oversell it. And he said, if all we do is change the culture, that will be worth it. You know, he said, you didn't think that, that hand those hand-washing signs were just to get people to wash your hands, did you? 
I was like, well, yeah. I said, no, it's to get him to start thinking about a culture of sterility and cleanness and, and not just the hands, but just the whole way they treat it. And, and so there, it's, it's really a cultural change that genetics may help drive, both with data and with practice, that, that is, is part of this. Less tolerance of adverse drug reactions, more effort to prevent them, I think, is, is what we're going to be seeing for economic reasons as well as patient safety reasons. Um, the complexities really require great informatics, and, and that, you know, I don't know about, about Duke, but there are so few medical informaticists in, in the world. Um, we, we have basically zero at UNC. And so there's a lot to be done in terms of, of developing these complex strategies to, to help support these ideas, because you can't just rely on the, the brain anymore. Um, and then lastly, um, we, we can really take advantage of some of these healthcare economic changes to use it as a stick to, uh, and a carrot, to push the patient safety agenda. And we may have gotten into this to try to make things better for patients from the start, but we can use the slime and ooze of economics to help achieve that end goal. And maybe I'm self-justifying, but the, the idea that um, the distasteful elements of academics or of, of hospital care, you know, the things that we don't like to talk about, like you know, the, the money, um, can now be used as a driver for many of the changes that we've been trying to push through uh, scientific means uh, all this time. So I'll, I'll stop at that point um, and entertain any more questions. But thank you very much. I don't know who's the. Oh, you, you put your hand up first, so. Great talk, Howard. Always very entertaining. What lessons do you think we've learned from the whole Merck Medco tamoxifen CIP 2 6 testing? Because I think it reflects to Jeff's questions about you know, when does the data have to be, how robust is that yeah. to adopt it? And your points about changing culture also, because you know we learn over time in medicine, you, you push something forward as being a great advance and then it evaporates. Right, happening. right. That undermines that kind of cultural change. Yes. Well, well, I think, so to me what it highlights is we shouldn't be pushing a technology or a, a method. The pushing patient safety agendas and tools that can help us with that, that's the kind of thing that I think are less likely to go away. It may be that the, the genetic basis for some of that might go away versus proteomic versus shoe size or whatever. But if, if we break it down to the basic element of what we're trying to do, that's the thing that I think is most sustainable. Because if you, you, know, if you look at ways of opening a vessel in the heart, um, there are a number of different ways of, of doing that. Uh, and you know, depending who you see first, kind of depends on how you get that done. But, but the, there's a number of different ways of doing it. And they're all valid. And there's been a number of ways that have fallen by the wayside. Of, you know, I remember the, you know, there was, what was that laser stuff they were doing at WashU when you were there? Were there basically going in, and instead of stent, it was kind of pre-stent. They're going in there with laser stuff, and it sounded really cool. And it had laser, you know, so of course, you know. <laughs> but, but in the end, it didn't really help enough. You know, there's, I remember when radiation oncology was changing their name to radiation therapy because there was a New England paper saying that radiating the heart or some kind of radionucleotide was going to be the way to treat heart disease. And so they didn't want to be just cancer anymore. They wanted to also be treating heart disease. You know, of course, that never happened because who knows what? Um, probably the data. Um, but so if we if we stuck with just the radionucleotides to repair the heart, or if we stuck with just genetics as the tool, then we're going to get stuck because there'll be sometimes when it's incredibly useful, like a back of air, and there'll be sometimes when the data doesn't pan out. Um, and so I think part of it is making sure we frame the question right. Um, 
it also will help us ask the right question. I personally think that the warfarin example has taught us that we haven't asked the right question. First of all, we have asked it in the wrong place. The people who need the most help are not the places with a good anticoagulation center. It's the other 80% of patients that don't have a good anticoagulation center. And so that's where we should be asking the question because we're trying to make great greater instead of crap greater. You know? So you know, that, that sort of thing, is, it's a very different question. Um, it, it also highlights that we have this discrepancy between, or sorry, the, the, back on the orphan thing, the places we've looked have also been at new starts on therapy, whereas, and, and that's an important place to go. But if you, the thing I hear people complaining about the most are the dentists and the interventional cardiologists as they have to stop people and restart them and wait three days because that's the protocol and then some people still bleed and then blah, 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 blah. I think that the CYP2C9 data in particular will be quite informative on how long one waits after stopping before one implants the device or does the dental procedure and also how fast you'll get back up. We, we haven't even talked about going in that, those areas yet. And yet that's where the greatest need. So I think we need to reframe where our need is. And then the, the examples of like the tamoxifen example, the drug interaction with the SS, SSRI uh, antidepressants and CYP2D6 that data came out saying there's likely to be an interaction, 80 patients, of which 14 or something had, had the drugs. That data came out at ASCO. Medco shown this great data where basically the use of CYP2D6 interacting antidepressants commonly with tamoxifen just went away. People just stopped doing it. And yet the genetic cause of that exact same problem, where there's now a, a lot more data, um, is still up in the air. People, you know, so people have taken the exact same mechanism, and one aspect they completely bought in blindly, another aspect will never be ready for prime time. So we have to find some way of getting some objectivity in there. And I'm not sure that those of us who believe are the right ones to do that. Um, it may be the unbelievers that, uh, or, and I don't think the people who are adamantly against it, you know, it's, we we're talking about global warming. You know, there's people who, it doesn't matter how much data is, there's always some data. You, if you don't believe in global warming, you'll find some reason to not believe in it. Um, and we have that same phenomena going on right now with genetics and with other things too, uh, where, you know, every time there's more data saying you should do something, well, what about, uh, you know, uh, and, and so I think there's issues like that, that I don't know if any of us in this room are equipped to deal with. You know, there's people across campus that are into this sort of thing, and maybe we need to get the sociologists and psychologists involved, in terms, or maybe the marketing management people. How do you trick people into drinking Coke, you know, uh, Coke Zero as opposed to Diet Coke? You know, I mean, no, that's, you know, I mean, I think there's some of it that's there. So I, I went on too long, but but I, I think part of the problem is is not science and medicine anymore. <laughs> you, I think you were next. Yeah. No, sorry. I, I, there's a lot of things I should have done better with that slide. Um, so that ends up being, um, it's a, about, about four, I think it's 45 different drugs that are influenced by these 24 genes. There are some drugs, like, like warfarin has two, some just have one. Um, and these were, these were not just any genes with some data. These were, we have a, a process, a multidisciplinary process where we go through and we ask the question, if the patient arrived with this data, could we act on it? That's our, that's our threshold. 
not should you order it, but if they arrive. And so these were examples that made that threshold. So these were things that if the patient came in, there would be a different way that we would treat them. Genes, no, 24 different genes, 61 variants in those genes, about 45 drugs. I can give you the exact list, but it's about that. Thank you, Rene. You know, this is basically biomarker development. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know. studies are kind of challenged by other controllers, like right. you mentioned, like obesity, you know, how does weight influence the whole outcome, uh, adverse health events, age, renal function. How important do you think that the studies adjust for these controllers? Um, well, you know, and how yeah. far do we go, you know, comorbidities, is it right. and many of these studies don't have have the data at all, right? That's right. Yeah, so, I, well, they don't have the adjustments, but often they don't have the data. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, those initial um, convenient sample type studies, which may, often they are, um, sometimes they'll adjust for some factors, you know. So if you're, if you're looking at obesity and you don't adjust for at least some measure of diet and exercise, you know, what do you have? Um, but there, there are many of them that don't go into the, you know, confounders. Um, a lot of uh, measures of neutropenia, you know, the like prediction of neutropenia after chemotherapy, a lot of times they don't take into account pre-therapy neutrophil level. Uh, you know, if someone has, is on the lower end, and, you know, they're more like, so when you put that in the model, you get a very different spectrum of, of genes that, are, that, that come out of, of your analysis. Whether either of them are right is a different story, but at least it, it does affect. So even something simple like that data you have often isn't taken into account. Um, when you look at the drugs that have been tested, there are extremely small number of drugs that have ever been assessed at any level for pharmacogenetics. And so I, you know, I laugh at people when people think, you know, oh, the field's getting saturated. Yeah, saturated with what? Saturated with warfarin studies, maybe, but it's not. I mean, there are all these drugs that are commonly used. So if you take the top 200 drugs, there's only like five of them that have ever had a decent pharmacogenetic study. And so the rest of them, we don't have a clue whether genetics is the next best thing or completely useless. And, and so there are a lot of studies that need to be done just to see whether we should care much less actually find a biomarker and go forward. Um, and, you know, there have been some things like there's a, I think Alan Schuldiner was here for this, this series, um, December. You know, he's taken the Amish and tried to do some stuff with the family structure of the Amish to, to sort that out. We've done some twin studies, both with cell lines as well as people, to try to get heritability and some family studies. But, you know, there's a lot to be done just to ask the question, should we care about genetic solutions? And much less go and actually find them. And so, you know, we have a long way, you know, we're, we're uh, doing a fair amount in China right now, and part of our push is not with new drugs, but to go and take all these old drugs and, that we know have some adverse events and try to figure out, you know, should we care? Because in many parts of the world, old drugs is all they have. And so if we can figure out good markers for old drugs, it could be quite useful in other parts of the world. I think it could be, could be quite useful here. You know, the, for hypertension, you know, hydrochlorothiazide and drugs like that are still at the top of the list of what one is supposed to use, yet we don't have a clue of when that's going to work versus some of these others. And so there, there are drugs that are older than many of us that we, we don't know about. And I think part of the answer is going to be going back and finding a way to, to get these large cohorts for old, boring drugs and, and do that. So. I think as a first step, we need, you know, if we, yeah, if we predefine what we know is important, 
and, and capture that. I think you know, the difficulty with doing studies out where most people are is that there, it's not a research setting. You know, we, we're, we're doing a lot of our studies right now out in the community, and we've had to buy places a centrifuge because <laughs> they didn't have a centrifuge. You know, why would they need a centrifuge? You know, things that you kind of take for granted, they, you know, they, don't have, they don't have. They don't even know what a research nurse is, much less have one. So the, the idea that we operate in that environment um, requires a very different way of thinking. And so instead of doing the full clinical trials-grade toxicity, we say, all right, we want this toxicity, yes, no, at this cycle, and nothing else. You know, they can do that. Um, and, and so sometimes it, it's those compromises that one has to do. To, to, but. Maybe I'll uh, take the last question. So uh, your conversation with your CEO sounds extraordinary about um, convincing them to um, collect, to, to preemptively genotype. Extraordinary is the yeah. way you say it. So, I mean, it's like, you know, I, I think about collecting DNA from every admission, sequencing or genotyping it, and then providing the resources to give the information back to the treating physician. So that sounds like it costs a lot more than hand washing signs. So, it it so, does. So, they, they, yeah. so, so UNC is going to support all that. Uh, they say that he says he is. <laughs> um, so you know we'll see what what actually happens. So we're starting a pilot, and we'll and we'll we've done the numbers to see how much it costs to do sixty thousand patients a year. Um, what is that? Uh, it's uh, twelve million dollars per year. Per year. Now we lost nine million. From adverse drug reactions, so it's obviously more than that we lost. So you know we're not going to save uh, nine million by spending twelve. Um, although my daughter's trying to convince me that's the way to go, but um, <laughs> but the the um, I, I think that there's uh, it's more of the cultural changes that he's going. Now I think that twelve million will end up being a lot less because a lot of that is the actual cost of genotyping, and and I have a conversation later today where I think we're going to be able to get that down quite a lot because of the volume. Um, so it may end up being you know, 6 million instead of 12. But um, the, we're using the regular infrastructure. So the, the way we're currently thinking about it is that basically every morning, so there's a clinical pharmacist that goes out to every, that's responsible for every um, service in the hospital. Sometimes they round with the service, sometimes they're just responsible for it. And so every morning they get a list of uh, new drugs that are prescribed to anybody on that service, n the information on the new admissions. There'll be a pick list that has the genetic information that comes out there. And so that'll be part of the way we do it. Is it won't be a lot of extra cost, it'll be extra work, but they're already thinking about drug interactions and other elements. Sure. So the other piece that we've had to work on is the handoff. So if someone's there, there for one day and we, do the we get this information and we have risk information, we need to get it to their primary care folks. And we won't get the data back for a week They've been gone for six days, you know. So a lot of work right now is around how do we plan the hand back, uh, and that. And right now, um, I don't know how it's done here, but a lot of it is really put on the patient. You know, they're given a pack of information and say, you know, good luck, uh, and we we can't. That's just not acceptable. Um, if if because we're we're generating risk, and you know, liability with this information. So we're now developing a different, a better hand hand back system, and we'll see what happens, but. So your patients are obviously consented on the day. They are, but uh, well, we we are we are we're in the pilot phase. So uh, at that point, they're consented as a research study. The plan is that, and I'm not the right person to defend this, but the, the way the ethics and hospital folks are doing this, it's going to be part of the consent for care. So they won't be. This is not research. This is practice. Mm -hmm. Now. It seems, I guess I've been around too many LC people, but it just seems like a big step. But say, wait a minute, we don't consent people to scan them, and there's, a, there's real risk there. 
<laughs> so I'm like, well, um, but that's the way it's planned. And, you know, they do an EKG on everybody. No one orders that EKG. It's basically, it's part of the, you know, you stepped your foot in the building. Right. You know? uh, so it's the way that. They, they are, yeah, and yeah. So they're, yeah. I didn't have time to go into that, but the um, there's already those discussions are already underway where there's going to be sharing of the cost. There, there's also many. Most of these tests are reimbursed, so the you know the the tests will probably be reimbursed. They because you know at least right now the way the way tests are reimbursed, no one knows what they're paying for, so uh, they'll all get reimbursed. But but um, um, Blue Cross Blue Shield and others are going to be sharing some of the cost and some of the savings, supposedly. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's a lot more to it than I had time to put in these yeah. slides. But. Thank you, Howard. Oh, this yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs>